The following is a CA original. The mighty sound of the South, tailgating on Tiger Lane. Tom three at the Liberty Bowl. Each one a Memphis football tradition. This is the Tiger Football Podcast. What's happening, Tiger football fans? We are back for another edition of the Tiger Football Podcast. I'm Mark Giannato, the Commercial Appeal Sports Columnist. I'm joined by Evan Barnes, our Tiger football beat writer. Jason Munns, our Tiger basketball beat writer and producer, is here. Uh, hopefully we can provide some solace after uh, this weekend's disappointing 30-28 to loss at Temple. Uh, included a very controversial, controversial ending. Very controversial. Um, involving... Uh, a catch or no catch by Joey Magnifico. It also included uh, four turnovers, uh, almost all of which were a direct result of Brady White. Um, Memphis, you know, falls into a 16 nothing hole, comes back, uh, and then looks to be driving for the go-ahead score on a somewhat miraculous fourth, fourth and seven conversion with a little under three minutes to go by Brady White. Looks like he's going to get sacked. Heaves the ball in the direction of Joey Magnifico. It appears as if Joey Magnifico comes down with the catch. It's ruled a catch on the field. And then after review, replay review, it is reversed. Uh, Temple gets the ball, and essentially the game is over. Um, the catch, if you will, or the no catch, has been talked about ever since. Um, after the game, Joey and... Brady and Mike Norvell, ever anyone you asked on the Memphis side was it said it was a catch. They thought it was a catch. The jumbotron showed it was a catch. Um, I guess I'll give my thoughts first, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Evan. To me, of the replays I saw, I think my gut tells me he might have dropped the like the ball might have hit the ground, but to me, ultimately. Nothing was indisputable in those replays. So if they had ruled it incomplete on the field, right. I don't think you could have reversed it to complete. And Unless. vice versa, I don't think, because it was called complete on the field, I don't think there was enough evidence to reverse that call. Um, I Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I think anybody watching would agree with that. That, that I, I, I don't, from a completely unbiased, objective point of view... You, that can't be argued. Your point. Yeah. Um, there. Like I said, my gut tells no. me. I think when you watch it really slowed down, there is a view where you can be like, "Well, maybe the ball hit the tip of the ball hit the ground, and that's what caused it to move." But again, it's and it it's didn't just ma- move. That should yeah. be. We should note that it doesn't just it move. Pops. It, it It rockets back toward his legs. But but yeah. but again, it's maybe. And maybe doesn't shouldn't reverse a call, right? Because it could have hit his arm from where you looked at That's it too. Absolutely right. So it very easily could have been as, as right. a result of his and, arm hitting the right. ground and the ball hitting his arm and moving back. But like you said, I don't think there was any evidence that would have said clearly this ball hit the ground. Now, one of my other big issues with all this is how the AAC has handled yeah. everything. One, one to me, if you have a coordinator of officials. Like, I can maybe understand why you don't want to make the actual replay official available, even though, you know, 
when Brady White makes a mistake and throws an interception, he's got to talk to the media most of the time. Why, you know, why shouldn't the replay official? But if you want to keep this guy who's not maybe necessarily media trained and, you know, is, you know, you don't want, you don't want them in the spotlight like that. You have a coordinator of officials. The coordinator of officials should be talking, not a spokesman for the league. Cause essentially, you're playing telephone. That spokes. It's like the coordinator of officials is talking to the replay official, and then the spokesperson for the league is talking to the coordinator of officials. And a lot of times in situations like that, stuff gets lost in the you know sort of the translation. And so that's my one problem. Well, and, cor- and correct me if I'm wrong. To your point, the commissioner of the league should not be having to answer questions for this. No, I mean, if you make the coordinator of officials available then the commissioner can when i can just tell you like when i covered the acc doug rhodes was the coordinator of officials i had his cell phone number i could just call him up and he would talk to me whether it was on the record or off the record sometimes it would be off the record but he would explain the call and help form your story and you know something like that needs to be put in place my other problem with it though is also the explanations we've been given like so chuck sullivan the spokesperson for the league is saying, you know, he gave the statement on Saturday and some people interpret it, interpreted it as, cause he said just vaguely the ruling was right. And he was referencing the replay right. ruling, the replay not the ruling on the field, but again, lost in translation. When you do something like this, people, people thought he was talking. Basically people thought the AAC the replay official had thought the ruling on the field was it was not a catch, not a catch. and yeah. that they were confirming yeah. it. When in reality, what Chuck was rep- – it was just a – you know, they didn't put out a state. It was like him getting interviewed by a pool reporter and, you know, again, something got lost in translation right. a little bit. My other problem, though, is so when I asked – there was a rumor going around after the game. Someone who had talked to the replay official said, like, the replay official was adamant that, like, this was an incomplete catch. He had a view of it that was indisputable. And so the question was, was he looking at a replay that wasn't shown on TV? And I emailed Chuck Sullivan about this yesterday, and he said, basically, his he, he said, as from what I he understands, the the replay official only has access to the TV replays. So unless ESPN doesn't strike me as the type of company that's withholding a replay if they have a good replay. And then now and then but then you, Jason, talked to Mike Oresco yesterday. Yeah. And he gave an explanation that seemed to conflict with that in that he basically was like, well, they have views that, you know, the regular fan doesn't have. Yeah. Right. Um, now, Chuck mentioned that the, the, these replay officials can slow things down frame by frame, whereas maybe they don't do that on ESPN, on the ESPN broadcast. So maybe that's what Oresco was referencing. But again, AC, it just, it just, it was, the AC not only was the call bungled, it felt like the aftermath was bungled. Yeah. I mean, I, I. Can't even remember where I heard this, but um, somebody said that it was the in-stadium feed. Was the was so no the, one's confirmed that because yeah. so that's another theory of this is that because they were playing in an NFL stadium, yeah. there were some more camera angles than your typical college stadium. But again, what Chuck Sullivan said is that all they have access to is the TV. That replays. is strange. Right. And if that's but then the Mike case, Oresco seemed to allude to, yes, there might have been a view that no one got to see. If I'm the AAC 
I'm releasing whatever whatever replay this replay official used to overturn the call. I am releasing that video to show people that it was indisputable. If indeed it was, because the AAC is backing up right. the replay official saying the call was indisputable. So show us the replay. Be yeah. transparent. Right. Because honestly, if you're looking at everything, we're I'm hearing you guys right now. I'm confused. Imagine how fans feel right now. Like they're ready to like you know storm the AAC offices because. They're not getting a clear answer. I think my favorite moment of this trip was I was on a flight coming back from Philadelphia on Sunday night. And there, you know, there's not that many direct flights from Philly to Memphis. So there were quite a few Memphis Tiger fans on the plane. And there was this one younger, I guess young, I'll say young man, look college age. He's just walking down the aisle of the plane. And every, I don't know if he knew these Tiger fans or what, but he's walking down the aisle and just every Tiger fan he sees going, we were robbed. We were robbed. We were robbed. Like just walking down the aisle. I thought it was great. I was just like, this is phenomenal. Um, but I do think the controversy over the call has obscured really the, the, the real problems that showed up in this Temple game for Memphis and problems that are concerning with a big game against Tulane coming up. One, obviously... The four turnovers by Brady White were uh, horrific and really cost Memphis. But I think even more so, like if we just look back at the past few games, like, and Mike Norvell has kind of alluded to this a little bit, like, not that you could see this coming, but when you take the whole sort of the whole specter of the season, it's not exactly surprising. In that they played bad, they played like a lackluster game against Louisiana Monroe the week before. Right. They played a bad first half against Navy the week before that. Um, This is not out of the blue. No, like South, even the South Alabama game, they didn't look like super impressive. Um, Like the old, they haven't put the old Miss game is probably about as good as they've looked. Yeah. And even that, they only put up fifteen points. Right. Um, And so. You could kind of not see this coming, but just this was the the apex, I guess, if you will, of like them. It was it was endear- it's endearing when you win, when you're gutting out wins like like they have at times this year. But it also can come back to ke- it can catch up to you. And it felt like in this Temple game, yes, that call cost them a chance to beat Temple, but. They also, I, I don't know. I, I would say probably the the better team for most of the game won. I'll say the second half, Memphis was the better team, but that didn't obscure. It doesn't overcome the fact in the first half, especially in the first quarter, they were awful. I mean, that was probably the worst quarter we've seen from Memphis this year, easily. And Maybe like, the worst quarter of the Norvell era. Well, it was really bad. How, how, I would ask. I would counter with this. How bad was it when they played UCF two years ago when Riley was throwing the ball to the other team? Yeah, but well, I mean, guess that game was different in that the first that game people forget like it was seven seven coming out of the. I think it was like a tie game or real close coming out of the first quarter, and then they had a horrific second quarter in that game. Um, if I recall correctly, um, and like when it, it went into halftime down by a bunch and never, you know, obviously never recovered. Um, and then the Houston game that same year where they w- were down 17 nothing. it's the only time in Mike Norvell's career as a coordinator or head coach that he didn't score a point in a half. Um, but 
this was bad just because. I mean, I don't know. It was just the turn, uh, just how bad the turnovers were, and it, 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 it took away. It was an interesting dynamic with Brady White in that he had these four bad turnovers, and I don't know if all of them were his fault, but it seemed like at least three of them were directly his fault, and he had even as even as polarizing and as how and the criticism he's taken. One of the things he'd done well is he had avoided, for the most part, mistakes like this. Um, and obviously, he had a bunch of them in this game. Now, to counter that, Mike even said it Monday, like, he threw the ball downfield pretty well in this game. Like, certainly better than most, if not maybe every game he's been the starter at Memphis. Um, it was just, he, it, like, he had more big plus plays than he usually does, but he also had more big minus plays than he usually does. So it was a interesting dynamic there with him. I was going to say, and people were in my mentions on Twitter talking about this, I said, for everyone giving Memphis credit for coming back in that game and making it close and everyone blaming the call and everything, one of the reasons they did come back in that game was because of Brady White moving the ball downfield. I mean, after that, after that fumble in the fourth quarter, they came down and scored a touchdown. And had they scored, if that fourth down catch doesn't get overturned, we're looking at this a little bit differently, so you have to at least give Brady that. I guess I still think it was a he lost them the game. No, no, he did. I'm just what I'm saying is that he played really bad to get them in that hole, and he almost dug them out of that hole too. So it's almost like that's why I wrote good Brady, bad Brady because uh, I thought this was one of I think because like you like the positives he had cannot do not like. To me, even come close to equaling the negatives he had. In no, this and, game. and I'm not, and I'm not saying they cancel out. What I'm saying is that there was both in the game, and we can obviously say the four turnovers led to 16 simple points. That was a big problem. All I'm saying is that he did show some resilience in a way where I'm encouraged by that. But he can't play that bad again if they want to beat a team like Tulane or looking ahead SMU. Now, Mark, I know your. There's been so much talk of, and we've been doing a lot of it about Brady White's turnover, turnovers, the, mm-hmm. the, the how prone he is to turnovers, and, and especially against Temple. But I think there's a play that that has has gotten lost in in everything else. The play before the non catch, it was third and I think it was seven, third and seven or so. And I know your opinion a lot of times when it's four down territory. You know, if it's third and long, you don't necessarily, you know, have to, have to you know, and I know the whole thing about four down territory, but he checked the ball down to Kenny, to Kenneth Gainwell yeah. on mm-hmm. third and long. And I think he either lost a yard or it was two no yards. lost two yards. Yeah. Cause he was going to be Kenny. Kenny was going to become the first uh, Memphis oh, right. running back to have a hundred yards receiving a hundred yards rushing. And he went, he had a hundred yards receiving exactly. And that, and that catch put yeah. him at 98. Yeah. But um, I just think that's another. That's a yes. But I think that play was designed for Kenny because he had been their best. He was their best offensive player yeah. all day. Regardless, in that situation, whether it's Brady White's fault or somebody else's fault, how do you? I don't know how you can throw the ball two yards behind the line of scrimmage when it's third and seven or third and six or whatever it was. Third and seven. In that situation, that seems to me. I Look, had no problem I mean, with that. That puts play you well. in a fourth and nine situation with the right. game on the line. Now, granted, that play had worked most of the game for them because they had gone underneath the game well really well. But 
I can see what you're saying, though. Is that- I'm just saying when it's crunch time and, and, and you consider the risk versus the reward. You're I don't risking know. I, setting yourself up in a fourth and nine situation. I'm okay line with putting and the, Brady White at quarterback. I'm okay with putting the ball in Gainwell's hands and space in that situation. Because it works, if it, it doesn't work, then you then end you have up in the situation. Down. You end up in the situation again. I, who yeah. would you'd ra- I, I would rather have. I would rather have Gainwell trying to make the play in that situation than putting the ball in Brady's hands and telling him to go make a big time throw. So maybe right. instead of. Throwing the ball to the line of scrimmage. I mean, I, I don't disagree with you that the ball should have been in Kenny Gainwell's hands, but maybe you put him out in space somewhere. Well, I think Mike to- was. I well, he did. It was a. It was like a screenplay. Yeah, Mike was. They were pinning their ears back because they were just throwing the ball in that drive. And I think Mike, you know, was trying to make a play with Gainwell. I, I didn't have a problem with that play call. Mike, ha- Mike has afterwards on Monday. Basically called it one of the he he did not like his own play calling in that game. He said that um, the only other time I've really heard him speak like that was after the Navy game last year, um, and he clarified it as he there were some things they did in that game that he wished they had gone back to. Like there were some things that were successful. Um, I mean, one of my issues with the offense right now is the number of RPOs they run, and I know it's a foundational piece of Mike Norvell's offense, like. That is like, you know, it's built around RPOs in a lot of ways. But when the quarterback isn't a threat to run, and when he does run, he's a he's a big time risk to fumble the ball. I don't see the I, I don't see how doing RPOs benefits this offense. It seemed like when this offense lined up and ran just a regular shotgun play or something under center or just ran the ball normally, they did fine against Temple. And I know they do the RPOs because it gives basically basically you've the RPO. It doesn't seem like it's as successful when you've there's three options out of it. Brady can throw it. Brady can hand the ball off to the running back or Brady can run. Well, no, the defenses don't respect Brady running the ball. And again, when he does run the ball, he might fumble it. They're um, actually hoping he runs right, the ball, you know. And that. so, like I, to me, that's something that needs to be. Th- thought about you know it's not i'm not saying eliminate rpos but i would certainly decrease the number of them yeah. that i'm running yeah because obviously i will say like i admire brady taking more chances and just acting instead of thinking his way through and making bad decisions just going for it but he is not the mobile quarterback who can do this really well and as you saw when he did run it he got it rocked and fumbled the ball in the fourth quarter well and it's interesting mike mike saying he wished he had gone back to i think like Feeding Magnifico should have done more of that. That worked every time in that game. Giving the ball to Joey, give down the seam to the tight end. Yeah, even worked on the catch, no catch in a lot of ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I'd like to see him more involved. Um, like like Mike said, they threw the ball downfield better than a lot of games they have. Um, there's stuff there. Like yeah. the comeback does, however, if we transition into this week's game against Tulane, while while personally I'm not sure if they win this game, the comeback does give you hope that this is just a blip that was the result of a horrific turnover game, and that this team is still what we thought they were, and you know. Everything's still on the table for this team. Like they can still win the AAC West. They can still win an AAC title. If they win out, they could. I see a 
very – there's a scenario where they could still go to a New Year's Six Bowl. Now, personally, do I – out of that scenario, a New Year's Six Bowl would take probably Boise and or Appalachian State losing a game um, and then Memphis winning out. And in that scenario, like I, I definitely can see App State or Boise State losing a game. I, I think it I – th- I find it hard to believe Memphis is going to win out the rest of the way given what I've seen so far. That's not to say, like I predicted nine and three before the year and I feel like it's tracking that way. Yeah. Given, I, given what's left on the schedule. Yeah. I, I think there's some, there's probably going to be a game or two where Memphis finds a way to, to lose. Now the question is, if you're looking at Boise state schedule here, I thought they could lose to BYU at BYU, but BYU just lost to South Florida. So I think, They'll be fine there. I don't think Boise State loses. Utah State is going to be a tough game for them. BYU on the road is going to be a tough it'll game be, for them. It'll be tough, but I have a feeling I'm more confident in Boise State because BYU They again. just lost their quarterback. So, oh, well, um, BYU whole, or? Boise. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> so I think they're going to lose a game here. At some, and I'm right. predicting it's the Utah State game because um, Utah, Utah State's pretty good, um, and it's in Utah State. And yeah. so – but again, honestly, I'm more I'm more concerned about Memphis winning the West, which is why this Tulane game is so big, and it's a game they got crushed in last year, um, and Tulane is better than last year. Yeah, um, much better. They have Will Hall as their offensive coordinator, who worked here a year ago. Um, it, I, I'm curious what you think about this, Evan. Was Will Hall ever considered? For the, I know he kind of left right before Kenny Dillingham left, but was he ever considered for the offensive coordinator job? Like, I, I know it's probably different being the OC at Tulane than being the OC at Memphis, and that this is Mike Norvell's offense, whereas at Tulane, you it's more he's probably more his imprint is more on yeah, it. Yeah. But um, it seems like it seems odd to me that you would let a talented guy like that go to a conference, a division rival. Well, I think given Will Hall's experience, he was an OC at West Alabama. He was a head coach before. I know he's already he's been in that position before, so I couldn't see him being an OC under Mike just because of what you said. Mike calls the plays here, but I do think that obviously Will Hall probably learned some things from being here for a year, and from what he's already brought had already in his bag. You look at what Tulane's got now. I think. It was probably a decision that made the most sense. As you come here, you jump to a better job, and now you have an offense that is, according to stats, your top thirteen in the country. And it's it's a mix of option and pat. Now it's like it was like a big option offense a year or two ago, and now there's more passing involved. Would you say that's right? Well, actually, they are number four in rushing offense, which I was okay. shocked about. I did not expect them to be fourth nationally in rushing, which scares me a bit because last year. That's how Tulane was able to really kind of dominate Memphis, was up front, run the ball, and just gash. Granted, the defense that had five guys who were out, but gashed them completely for rushing yards. So I'll be curious how Memphis stops that. But I. So they're not quite like. They're not like Navy. So, like, Justin McMillan has thrown the ball 132 times this year. Um, And he's he's thrown eight touchdowns, two interceptions. He's averaging 173 yards through the air a game. Um, what's interesting, what, what this Memphis defense see in it struggled against Temple like this. Temple ran that play where they'd it looked like the running back was going to get the ball running one way, and the like a wide receiver would get the handoff going the other yeah. way. 
team like we we've talked about the aggressiveness of this defense under Adam Fuller and it feels like teams have started to take advantage of that with misdirection and things like that and there's the defense didn't play poorly against Temple they came up with some big stands to force field goals after those turnovers in the first half which were huge like if if Temple gets two touchdowns on those three turnovers, the game's probably over. Right. Um, and so the defense really kept Memphis in the game, and they came up with some big stops late. Um, the big turnover forced by T.J. Carter and whatnot. But it does feel like they need to make some slight adjustments in terms of teams have now seen what they did the first few games. They've adjusted. Now it's time for Memphis to adjust back, if you will. Um, and so... That will be interesting to see because, I mean, you look at the, in terms of total offense, this is the best. I mean, you've got two of the next three weeks, two of the next three games, excuse me. Yep. You've got SMU that's 11th in total offense and Tulane who's 13th in total offense. So these are going to be the two best offenses you face coming up here. Um, and so it's big for the defense. Honestly, frankly, it's big for the offense. Like they're going to, this is, this feels like a game where if they can't put up at least 30, 35 points, they're not going to win the game. And when have we ever thought about that with the Mike Norvell offense where we'd worry about that? You're starting to scare me, Mark. I, uh, I mean, you're talking about Tulane, you're talking about SMU, and then you've got Cincinnati a little bit after that. Uh, it's a tough schedule. Like I said, the the, the there, train I don't could think, leave the tracks here. I don't know about the train leaving the tracks. It's just it's the the AAC is a tough conference this year. the The West Division, according to the metrics, is better than the ACC Coastal Division. It's almost equivalent to the Big Ten West Division. Like this is a really tough division. Tulsa is the only team that isn't receiving votes in one of the national polls in this division. Like it is. That's just. The reality of the situation is that the schedule. We were all talking before the season about like how the schedule wasn't that great because they had these two, you know, they only play in Ole Miss and whatever. Like it's, it's a good thing they weren't playing two Power Five teams this year in non-conference play. The schedule is plenty tough enough. Yeah, yeah, yep. SMU and Tulane and Temple all sort of surprising us this year a little bit. Now the good news is one. I don't believe Tulane's defense is very good. That's Tulane's true. defense is ranked 32nd, yeah, which is which is higher than Memphis. Yeah, pretty good. And pretty passing good. defense. It's one below t- Temples, yeah. who who Mike called the best off defense they face this year. Um, although it's 16 spots below. Uh, uh, Navy is 16th in total defense, and Memphis did okay against that defense, so. Not fantastic, but had a great second half. I mean, they're going to have to put together a full game. Like, the re- these games, you can't just play. Like, the Temple game showed. You can't just play one half. you got to play a full game, both sides of the ball, to win these games. I mean, this Tulane team is – did they play this past week? They, were they did. They blew out UConn. So they're like 5-1. and one. The last time they were this good was 98 when they went undefeated. Um, and – so this is Sean King. Sean King, yep. Uh, yes. Quarterback there. This is a historic season for them right now. And so, now the good news is the game is at um, the Liberty Bowl, where yeah. Memphis, over the past, let's see here, they were 6-1 and one at the Liberty Bowl last year. 
they were undefeated during the regular season the year before that. Um, so basically, they've only lost to U- the last few years at home. They've only lost to UCF by one point, and they lost. I, if you count the Liberty Bowl against Iowa State, they lost to them by one point. Like this team is really good at home. Like Mike Norvell's teams are good at home, and they don't often lose road games Man, or you home had, games. You had almost, you had almost, you, you, the two of you had almost talked me into p- picking Tulane, and now you pull this. Yeah. Sorry. That's why we have another podcast to discuss those. Uh, I'm so stressed. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a big game. It's a big yeah. it's a big game for Memphis because you kind of you, you know you still control your own destiny right now, even after this loss to Temple for the most part. No, Patrick Taylor. Still, we'll see. I think we'll see. honestly, from what I've from people I've talked to, at this point, it is more of a Patrick Taylor decision than a. Memphis decision whether he plays if okay. that makes any sense. Um, okay. He's got to feel like I think they I think the Temple game was circled as the game he was going to come back, and he did not feel did he practice at all last he week? He did not practice. We did see him on on the side at the end of one of the practices doing some work, but we have not seen him in pads yet. Yeah, so to me, he's got to practice this week if he's going to play. Um, and and I would argue if he does practice this week, how limited will he be? Because this will be his first time going in team drills and everything else, or individual drills. So oh, I think if he's gonna play, he's got to he's got to practice a decent amount. I agree. I so, mean, he's been yeah. It's been five games. I wouldn't just rush him out there and say, "Hey, we need you against no. Tulane." Because I mean, frankly, they don't. I mean, like it'd be he he'd be a nice luxury to have. Sure. Gainwell's looked really good, <laughs> like really good. But if you could get. Ten carries out of Patrick Taylor. Oh yeah, like I said, it's not like you don't want him. Like it'd be great to have him, but right. at the same time, like Gainwell has shown, he's he's good enough to carry the right. Load. And you don't want to rush him back because they're going to need him over this backstretch more than anything. So well, would... and I don't think I think this is a question of like the longer like it goes. He's, without he's him thinking playing. about next year too. Like he doesn't want to put. If I'm him, I'm thinking this way. He doesn't want to put. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but if I'm him and I'm advising him, I don't want to put bad film out there. Right. I don't want to put. I don't want to go out there at seventy five percent and not look like Patrick Taylor, and yeah, the longer ruin hurt my you know draft stock hurt. Even though like you know he's probably not going to get drafted very high, but like to me, right now you've got the Ole Miss game and the previous film, and it looks all good. And like you can just say I was hurt. Whereas if you come back. And you you look, you don't look a hundred percent like that could be used against you during the draft process. So yeah, and I think the longer... it's a tricky situation where I get it, I totally get it, um, and especially because he probably knows that like like he probably is itching to play in these big games, but at the same time he sees what Gainwell's doing. It's not like you know he, there he doesn't need to rush back. Um, even though, like I said, it'd be a luxury that'd be nice to have if you're no, Memphis. And and Mike, and from what I'm hearing too, the plan is if he's not 100%, he is not going. He wants to be able to do all that he can do from what I've been hearing. So I would not rush it back because, again, you got three years of pretty good tape looking at the next level. But it'd be really good to have him in November. But, again, we'll see what happens this week. We'll see if he, you know how he practices, how he looks, and then we'll see what happens next week too because that might be a bigger indication of – what could happen? Because if he doesn't play next week, now we're looking at okay, there's what four games, three games left, four games left on the schedule in November. Then we start wondering, okay, what's it going to be? 
Yeah, don't you think the longer it goes without him, the less likely it is that no, because I, I, I don't I don't think he's coming back next year. I think like red shirting and coming back is not an option. No, he's this is his last year. So whether it's the SMU game where you get an extra week because there's an off week, um, it, whether it's three games, four games, five games that he plays, whether it's just the bowl game or something like that, or nothing at all. Like, like that, I guess there's a, there is a scenario I could see, but like. I think he's going to play at some point. I think it's going to be when he's comfortable, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll see what happens. Big one at the Liberty Bowl this Saturday, six o'clock kickoff against Tulane. To make that the headline of this podcast, well, big one at the Liberty Bowl. Big one at the Liberty Bowl. Two uh, two five and one teams. Um, loser is behind the eight ball in the AAC West division race. Winner is probably. Not in the driver's seat because SMU, but like is feeling pretty good about their chances, Man, especially it, it, Memphis because right, you get SMU say, at home. Too. I'll say passenger seat because they're still in pretty good shape. Yeah, SMU, so, so lot lot at stake even after the loss to Temple. Hopefully, there will not be a controversial replay review this time um, because if it happens at the Liberty Bowl, those guys might not make it out of Memphis. Those refs um, in one piece. So we shall see. But till. Uh, this whole week, we'll have plenty of coverage on CommercialPeel.com. Evan will be at practice all week. He will update you on the situation with Patrick Taylor, with everyone else. Um, make sure you're checking all of that out. Till next time, I was Mark. I was joined by Evan and Jason. Thanks so much, and see you at the Liberty Bowl on Saturday. A new episode of the Tiger Football Podcast posts each Tuesday during the regular season. You can also subscribe to the show for free on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. I'm Sean King. The Tiger Football Podcast is a production of the Commercial Appeal.